Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with... I know I'm no Olivier, but if I he fought Sugar Ray, he would say that the thing ain't the ring, it's the play. So give me a stage where this bull here can rage, and though I fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment. I'm Will, Will Sloan. <laughs> okay. I told, before we started the podcast, I said to Justin, wait, wait a minute, I got a bit that I'm going to do at the, <laughs> at the like, beginning. You're going to like this bit. You're going to like it. It's <laughs> yeah. going to be good. It's going to yeah. be good. I can imagine you. You sound like, like Donald Trump. <laughs> imagine you it's practice- the greatest bit it's gonna be the best bit <laughs> you're practicing in front of the mirror with like your shirt off and you're like, yeah i could have been a contender i say that to myself every day anyway what what are we listening to oh uh, you're listening to the input we're listening to i guess we're listening to ourselves right just get on with it <laughs> these these intros have been getting more convoluted and crazy <laughs> yeah. over the last few weeks the important cinema club and today we're going to be talking about America's greatest actor, Robert De Niro. Yeah, Machete himself. <laughs> uh, he does not play Machete. He plays the border guard who wants to make sure Machete doesn't get into America. Being Flynn himself. I, I don't know what that movie is. Wow. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. <laughs> we're going to talk about Robert De Niro. Specifically, we watched two films. Um, Raging Bull. Terrible. And Grudge Match. Great movie. <laughs> I mean, the thing about <laughs> Grudge Match is it can build on the original, the one that came before, to really refine its storytelling. And that's why you get such a classic. And Sylvester Stallone, come on. This this week was pretty depressing, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah, this morning I, I put on Raging Bull. Um, so earlier in the week I watched half of Grudge Match on Putt Locker, the way it's meant to be seen. <laughs> um, and I thought, good lord, what a... <laughs> What a piece of shit. And then, so then I put it aside for a while. This morning I watched Raging Bull. You know, I kind of, I, I kind of thought, oh God, I can't believe I have to watch this, this two and a half hour movie I've already seen. You know, was, I was school 101. I was glued to it. I had the, the same reaction where I was like, ugh. I have yeah. to watch this again. <laughs> but what a treat, honestly. And then I watched uh, the second half of Grudge Match. <laughs> I went over to a coffee shop and was watching the second half of Grudge Match. And I felt, I also felt like I was watching porn in public. <laughs> like, oh, I hope nobody, hope nobody sees me. <laughs> uh, I watched Grudge Match the day right after we said we were doing a Robert De Niro episode. <laughs> foaming at the mouth with excitement to check it out. Now... Will has been privy to what's been going on this week, which I kind of fell down the Robert De Niro, like, rabbit hole. Okay. Where I kept just watching Robert De Niro films and, like, I couldn't help myself. What did and you I, watch? I watched uh, Killing Season uh. with John Travolta. I watched Mad Dog in Glory with Bill Murray. Oh, okay. I watched uh, Bad Grandpa. Oh, I, I saw, uh, Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> Dirty Grandpa. I saw Dirty Grandpa a few weeks ago, and it is fucking funny. <laughs> and I also watched <laughs> Guilty by Suspicion. Omission or no, Suspicion? No, something like this that. This is one from the 80s, right? Yeah, the one that was di- directed by the producer of Raging Bull, and it's about the Hollywood blacklist. Okay. But we're going to talk about Raging Bull first, because when you talk about Robert De Niro, there's a few performances that come to mind. Godfather 2, um, Showtime with Eddie Murphy. Sure. The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> exactly. And Taxi Driver. And everything, when I think of Robert De Niro, is kind of present in Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. What would you say are those highlights? Oh, God. I mean, you know, it's hard to convey into words the experience of Robert De Niro at his best because there's something about it that's you know ineffable it is uh there's a sensual quality to it if you will that's indescribable but 
you know, it's a combination of uh, masculinity with vulnerability, kind of a, a raw se- sexuality, but with the fact that he's also like kind of weird looking. Uh, there's, you know, th- there's just a, a deep hurt in his eyes and, and a loneliness, but with a bravado. Uh, and, you know, there's also the fact that at this time in his career, he could just, like, do anything. He could do Jake LaMotta, the perfect symbol of kind of male sexual weirdness and frustration and self-hatred. And he could do something like Rupert Pupkin in The King of Comedy, who is this kind of empty shell of a man who's been entirely shaped by what he's seen on TV and seems to have no inner life whatsoever uh, and is kind of a wimp. Because when I often think of Robert De Niro, especially these modern De Niro, you think of that one persona that he's kind of, you know, molded and parodied in classics like Meet the Parents. Right. And Analyze This, mm-hmm. which I believe was kind of the... I, I would say, I would pinpoint uh, Analyze This as the real turning point in his career, where it was his first movie that made over $100 million. It was, at the time, it was kind of a novelty to see Robert De Niro make fun of his persona which is unthinkable at this point because it's all... (laughs) That's all he does. Um, And also analyze this coming in the late 90s. It came after... So the 90s weren't a great decade for Robert De Niro, but he was still doing stuff like Jackie Brown, Wag the Dog, even something like Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. Which was a challenge. It was a challenge. It was an attempt. Um, And after, after analyze this, he seemed to figure out, oh, I can make a lot of money doing this kind of thing. And Raging Bull is one of those roles that Robert De Niro is like in the books because of the lengths he went to achieve it. Famously putting on a ton of weight for the final 30 minutes of the movie. But but not just that, also training for literally two years um, with not only with Jake LaMotta, but he would train with um, a boxer. He had this boxer that he trained with who was kind of a journeyman boxer, but whose style was similar enough to Jake LaMotta's that LaMotta's opponents would train with him. So he trained with that guy. He spent so much time with Jake LaMotta. So Jake LaMotta was partially deaf in one ear and he would sort of lean in to listen to people talk but he would lean in in such a way to make it look like he wasn't leaning in because he was embarrassed robert de niro apparently noticed that and like replicated that in the movie and it's <laughs> I something didn't even notice yeah that. it's something that apparently like only people who really knew jake lamada would know but he figured that out and that's the kind of craft that you just do not associate with robert de niro at all anymore and i mean i'm a little hesitant to even like list off these things because at some point it almost starts to sound like a stunt like you know kind of like christian bale in the the machinist machinist. losing a bunch of weight after bulking up for batman and it's Mm -hmm. just stuff to put on the paper and be like look how interesting this movie is yeah and i mean you know robert de niro won an oscar for raging bull uh, I know that it was greeted immediately as one of the great performances, but like I feel like I guarantee he won that Oscar because he put on all that weight. You think like, so? Yeah, it was probably just for the stunt of it. Was the movie a financial success? I believe it wasn't. Not really. I mean, it was. It did. It did. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he also won an Oscar for The Godfather too, where he learned Italian. <laughs> That's insane. So here's another. Just while we're listing off these like stunts that he pulled, so for Big Bad Mama, one of his first movies directed by friend of the podcast roger corman <laughs> friend of the podcast <laughs> no. uh yeah he just called, uh, roger corman called me last night he was like hey how's will doing so um robert janeiro is like eighth build in this movie but apparently he would do things like he spent weeks in the ozarks learning you know, 
the dialect uh, of the Ozarks. He did library research, learning about the music and culture. And moreover, he studied what it was like to be an addict, learn, learning uh, the hygiene and the diet and you know what happened to the teeth of people with that who were addicts, and this is for or that the, Roger Corman picture that probably shot for two weeks. If right, that. right. So that's how dedicated he was at one point. Um, looking into Robert De Niro's kind of biography, I was really shocked to learn that both of his parents were artists. Because when you think of someone like Robert De Niro, you imagine this like working class background. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're a classist. I am uh, a classist. Yeah. I just see him and I go, well, I mean, you look at like Martin Scorsese and. He comes from a working class background. Mm -hmm. And because Robert De Niro is so associated with him, I assume they had kind of, I don't know, they were like best buddies when they were kids or something like that. And that's not really the case. De Niro's uh, father was a sculptor. His mother was like a poet and a painter. Mm -hmm. And he actually did art from when he was a kid, and especially acting. I think that his Wikipedia, where me and Will get all of our information. I uh, I read a Robert De Niro biography recently by Sean Levy. By Sean? Oh, Sean the Levy. The other Sean Levy. Not, <laughs> yeah, not, the... not the director of um, a Real Steel and yeah. Night at the Museum yeah, 1 that, to 3. That's right. <laughs> um, and you also read one by Glenn Kenny. Yeah, I read Glenn, Glenn Kenny's book, and it's also very good. And does it p- pinpoint anything about his youth that, like, pushed him into wanting to be an actor you know i always skip the youth parts and i hate those, you know, those parts in the de niro books i go straight for post 2000 that's <laughs> that's what i want to know about what happened because he, he uh, de niro got his first role in brian de palma's um the wedding party which was also de palma's first um feature length picture and then he kind of was like de palma's guy appearing in greetings which is de palma's like godard kind of takeoff mm-hmm. in a supporting role and um de niro was so well liked by the audience in uh, Greetings that De Palma made him the star in Hi Mom, the mm-hmm. movie that followed that. And even at this time, people sort of, you know, with these De Palma movies and with the Roger Corman movie and eventually with Mean Streets, where, which was kind of a big break for him, people knew that, like, oh, this guy is the next big thing. He was uh, that dedicated and that charismatic. De Palma didn't work with De Niro after that bunch of films until The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. And he said that De Niro at the time was almost impossible to work with so something interesting about raging bull and with the whole scorsese uh de niro collaboration supposedly in those days like their collaboration was so intense that you know de niro basically just had unlimited reign on a scorsese movie i know i i was reading jerry lewis being interviewed about the king of comedy and he said that he was astonished that you know scorsese would just cancel a day's shooting because he decided that de niro um his mood wasn't right for the day. That's and insane. Film, film another scene. Or, so, or I read an interview with Terry Gilliam about Brazil, where he said that he was driven nuts by De Niro because De Niro would just demand endless takes. He And he was so insecure about playing the part in Brazil because he never played a part that was that small and that kind of two-dimensional. I guess he worked with uh, Scorsese and other indulgent directors for so long that that he wasn't used to working with like later on in his career mm-hmm. the uh, director of Ghost Rider Mark Stephen Johnson <laughs> in um, Killing Season. I mean nowadays De Niro strikes me as one of those one take guys. <laughs> I- <laughs> so after Hi Mom, it was pretty much like. You know, Mean Streets, like you said, his breakthrough role, and it was just hopping up and up. And man, and up. when you watch him in Mean Streets, holy shit! Like <laughs> he's he, so good. He's like a live wire. He's got this insane energy, and then you you know you contrast it with Taxi Driver, where it's this kind of coiled, uh, just bubbling under the surface 
scariness. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel even stupid talking about Taxi Driver because, like, what else? What else can you say about it? <laughs> I mean, we d- already skimmed the surface of Raging Bull, which is all we're gonna do. Mm-hmm. Come on, we're not. Uh, we don't really need to talk about the movie movie because everyone has already talked about I, it. I would like to say a few things about Raging Bull. So you know. Uh, I was about to describe the plot, but you've already seen it. Here's what I liked uh, watching it this time around. Uh, the way there, there's kind of this like hothouse atmosphere to it that Scorsese in, invokes, you know, most famously with the boxing scenes, which are so kind of intense and, and up- abstract in the way that mm-hmm. they're shot, um, where it feels like they're in an endless black void with just smoke yeah. rising from the side. And it's quite upsetting at times, even like uh, in, I think the opening boxing scene where, you know, you see a woman being trampled in the audience because it's so, you know, so like, like you get a sense, it's almost like, you know, Christians being fed to the lions in the Roman Coliseum. Well, I think that um, Scorsese has said that he wasn't really attracted to adapting this as a movie. Mm-hmm. And it was De Niro who was super passionate about wanting to tell the story. And finally, when uh, Scorsese realized that what boxing could be portrayed as, mm. which is this kinetic montage of chaos just going around, mm. or people, uh, boxers being hit and their blood spraying across a lady in furs. I mean, uh, it's a famous story. It's almost like a folk story at this point that, um, you know, Scorsese uh, had a couple of lost years where he was living with Robbie Robertson and was addicted to cocaine. And I think after a cocaine overdose, uh, after, you know, lobbying Scorsese for years to make this movie. De Niro visited him in the hospital and gave him the script and said, it's time to make this movie. I think it was after New York, New York, which De Niro also started, which is a very interesting film. But not good. Yeah, I don't think it really works. Um, Because that's De Niro at his most unlikable, I feel. But anyway, aside from the hothouse atmosphere he evokes in the boxing scenes, I there was something about the scenes of uh, De Niro in his shitty apartment in the Bronx, where it has this just like really pungent, like it almost it feels like it feels like thirty degrees Celsius in there, you know. I was hypnotized by the way that um, Scorsese uses slow motion in like little moments, like mm-hmm. whether it's Jake Lamada's first wife, like looking at Lamada over cooking mm-hmm. stuff, or the time that he sees his second wife for the first time, and these like little moments that Mm. if you weren't paying enough attention, you wouldn't notice they were in slow motion. Mm. I remember taking in junior high a course at the university on film, a course that I will never forget because the TA that taught it was the most pretentious douchebag in the whole world. (laughs) But he showed us a shot from Taxi Driver of De Niro's eye and he was like, you know what like looks weird about this? And then everybody raised their hand to answer and he's like, no, 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 no. What looks really, what's different about this is it's in slow motion and it's in reverse. (laughs) And it's like, how are we supposed to know that? (laughs) But watching Raging Bull this time, I was really tuned in to those little decisions that um, Scorsese was making. Because last time I watched it, I remember finding, you know, as a kid who is, you know, mainlining cinema and watched those boxing scenes (laughs) that the kind of at-home sequences didn't do for much for me. But this time I was riveted throughout. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, I like at the clubs when, you know, later in the movie when uh lamada is a fat failure and he's on the stage he's smoking a cigar i just like the way that his his cigar smoke looks in the black and white yeah. like it just feels like the air is just full of heat and humidity and uh nicotine and just awful things uh, i also like the way scorsese uses boxing as um like it's like it's lamada's art form and it's also you know um his form of 
self-flagellation, basically. Like, he expresses himself and punishes himself through the boxing the way that, you know, an artist might through their canvas. Yeah, watching it this time, I seem to have a memory of Jake LaMotta just being a looter the entire film, Mm -hmm. but he's not. And the way that he expresses himself in the ring is mm. just as important as the way that Scorsese shoots the action mm. in the crazy kinetic way that he does. Yeah, like, we, you know, we famously, we remember the the parts where he punishes himself in the ring because of how badly he's treated the people around him. But there are also times when he's, like, really full of himself and cocky and he lets it out on, yeah. you know, some poor schlub in the ring with him. And, you know, there's, of course, the famous scene where... Uh, he just allows Sugar Ray Leonard to beat him up, and you just just, see just so he can say, "You never knocked me down." He cl- clutching at the ropes yeah. in like quick cuts, and it's ah, it's beautiful. Um, and finally, I guess my last thing I would say is I like it as a biopic because it it doesn't feel like other biopics because other biopics are concerned with checking a lot of stuff off a historical checklist, mm-hmm. whereas. I think with Jake LaMotta, if people knew him, it was just for the fights. People didn't really know the personal life. So this movie allows for a lot of scenes like, you know, kind of like when Robert De Niro brings home Kathy Moriarty for the first time and they have this mumbly conversation in the house. I mean, God knows if that actually happened. It feels like a scene that could just be from any De Niro Scorsese movie. It doesn't feel like it's beholden to the historical text. I think that because its um, thematic thrust is as clear mm-hmm. and Scorsese knows exactly what yeah. story that he has to tell, that it never has to follow those biopic rules. Exactly. The, the movie is has a thesis mm-hmm. that is and the fact that it's based on a true story is almost incidental. Jake LaMotta would go on to tell his story again in the sequel to Raging Bull, <laughs> Raging Bull 2 The Bronx Bull. Which after a lawsuit the title was just changed to The Bronx Bull this came out a few years ago. But it I mean I think it only came out last year because it was sitting on a shelf for a long time because of lit- litigation. William Forsyth, uh, flat top from Dick Tracy <laughs> <laughs> st- stars as Jake LaMotta and by the way I think Jake LaMotta is still alive is he not? He is. I checked and he is alive. He's in his 90s. Yeah. And um, it's a retelling of LaMotta's life because I think LaMotta was a little bit um, peeved, I guess, of the way that he was portrayed in Raging Bull. Well, maybe. Well, I mean, he went to the Oscars with De Niro that year, um, but maybe after 30 years of only being known as the guy from Raging Bull. <laughs> the as the that abusive. A- that uh, asshole who beat up his brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That he's like, I want to tell the real story of what happened after what's in Raging Bull. So it's the Yankee Doodle Dandy of uh, Jake LaMotta biopics. <laughs> it looks like Jake LaMotta is the nicest man in the world <laughs> who everybody loves and won't go down in a fight. Even though in Raging Bull, like, it's made clear he goes down in a fight. (laughs) Which, you know, after Raging Bull, De Niro had a career that was, you know, a little bit all over the place. Yeah, but a lot of of great movies in the 80s. King of Comedy, Brazil. Midnight Run was a big hit. I love Midnight Run. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America Mm -hmm. is, is a beautiful film. Uh, And, you know, in the 90s, it's a little bit dodgier. And then the 2000s. So... So Robert De Niro is a very cagey interview, famously. He's very shy, supposedly. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of fine because I don't really, I don't really care what he's like as a person. In the same way that that I don't, I don't need to know what Shakespeare was like as a person. Everything you need to know is in the plays. So it's it's kind of okay that we don't have a lot of historical information about what Shakespeare was actually like. And I feel like De Niro is clearly more comfortable expressing himself through acting than he is through interviews Uh, at the same time it would be it would be nice if he wasn't so cagey about why he's taking all these shit movies well i heard a story 
from a it, friend of a friend. It has to do with money, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like someone pitched him some shitty-ass movie, probably like Heist or something like that is a film that he's been in, and he went, mm, yeah, my friend just opened a hotel down in uh, Barbados that I want to invest in. So yeah, I'll take your movie. Okay, and he's also, like in the last 20 years, or maybe 30 years, has become such an investor in the Tribeca region in New York. Uh, like he... like. Tribeca is De Niro's playground, basically. So maybe he's reached the point in his life when he's gone, listen, I've done all this great acting. Mm -hmm. I just want to focus on some other stuff, but acting will allow money to come in for me to get involved in these hotels and restaurants and stuff like that. So let me work as little as possible. But also as much as possible, because he's (laughs) in like 10 movies a year. So I I think he likes to work, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, Because I don't know if he needs to do 10 movies a year. I think he likes being busy. Uh, I I mean, he's got a family that that he's raising, and that he doesn't want to get... He's got bills to pay. And he doesn't want them to be vaccinated. (laughs) We'll get into that a little bit later. (laughs) And also, I mean... I think when you're when you're 70 years old, there probably are fewer great parts. Yes. Uh, I mean, he's still been doing his best in stuff like David O. Russell, because he was in the Silver Linings Playbook. And those yeah. are smaller roles, whether you like the movies or not. Yeah, he's good in that. Yeah. And he's good in a few other movies. Um, a mo- there's a movie called Stone, which isn't very good, but he's committed in it. And there's a movie called Everybody's Fine, which is also not very good, but he he's kind of charming in it. And which brings us to Grudge Match. A meeting of two titans of the cinema screen. Sylvester Stallone, which I am shocked we have not done an episode on, because me and Will love Sylvester it's Stallone. It's inevitable. <laughs> and Robert De Niro, who play aging boxers, which I'm sure the audience, like Raging Bull, have seen this movie, <laughs> as you should, because it was such a big event when it came out. Listen, I... See, I've seen almost all of Sylvester Stallone's movies. Whenever he has a new movie out, I go see it. I did not see this movie. I'm shocked that you did not like <laughs> it just be looked, there Friday night. It just looked like in, such a piece of shit. Directed by Peter Segal, the director of The Naked Gun, 33 and one third, <laughs> and The Longest Yard uh, reboot with Adam Sandler. Uh, brings to the screen the story of these two old guys who's had a history and are now going back uh, on the boxing stage to prove that they still got it. And, and there's a lot of uh, personal baggage that these two old boxers have uh, because one of them was uh, uh, was with Kim Basinger and the other one uh, fooled around with Kim Basinger. So there's, there's a there, it is a grudge match because they have a grudge with each other. Now, I thought this movie was going to be a comedy. It's more of a hangout movie. <laughs> yeah, like, there's not really that many jokes. Right. Um, it's a bit of a throwback uh, to, to, like, an older kind of... like It's almost like an 80s comedy, because most comedies we see now are very, like, joke, joke, joke. Yeah, very, very high in concept. your face. Yeah, uh, this is just sort of like a, a pleasant movie. Like, they hired Sylvester Stallone and De Niro, somehow paying them, I assume, tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> and they just sat back and went, our work here is done. Right, and also Kevin Hart is in it, basically playing the part that Richard Benjamin played in The Sunshine Boys. He's the guy who, he's the uh, uh, hilarious Kevin Hart man who gets them together. And Alan Arkin shows up. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right. And, uh, God, is there anyone else? Uh, it's an all-star cast. Um, uh, oh, what's his name? Is it Joe Bernenthal, the Punisher himself in the new Marvel series, <laughs> playing uh, De Niro's son? I think that 
so a lot of this movie rests on the charisma of Stallone and De Niro and their chemistry together. The problem is they're not very charismatic in this movie and they have no chemistry together. Has Stallone ever given a less enthusiastic performance? Every frame of this film is Stallone screaming, please let me out to do something else. And also something occurred to me while I was watching De Niro in this film, uh, like when De Niro was younger, one of his big strengths was that he was a chameleon and he could play any part. And there wasn't, it's like Peter Sellers when Peter Sellers says, there is no me, I have. I had it surgically removed. But now De Niro is just De Niro. And frankly, that's not very interesting. I actually don't think he's, like he has a certain amount of gravitas just based on the fact that we know who he is and he's been around so long and he kind of, he knows how to go through the motions. But he's not that charismatic, honestly. Can I just <laughs> say think that? so? he is. I mean, bad grandpa when he's like, I want to fuck a horse. I want to drink its blood. So that scene was super funny. (laughs) You know, so in Dirty Grandpa, the second half of it is, I think, pretty bad. But the first half is full of laughs. Well, because it's just De Niro masturbating, (laughs) De Niro, like, salivating at the idea of having sex with young women. If the whole movie had just been an uncompromising, like, De Niro is a horny old man. And it doesn't feature Zac Efron with his nag of a wife, probably fallen in love with someone that he deserves to be with. Yes, it's a a bit uh, misogynistic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome. If it was just unrepentant, like De Niro just being, like, dirty grandpa, that'd be amazing. But getting back to Grudge Match, my problem with a lot of these late De Niro films is he's just kind of this big lug of a man who... I, I don't think his line readings are even that good. Like, I, I thought he was fine yeah. in Grudge Match. I had a thing where the first 30 minutes were hell. I hated it. It was awful. And then Stockholm Syndrome kind of started <laughs> to set in. And I'm like, I'm just happy to see Sylvester Stallone and Robert De Niro on screen. Because they're not even, like... Not much is going on, so it's not demanding much from me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, like you said, it's a hangout movie. Right. Um, and the also, idea of both of them boxing is ridiculous. Well, I think these two guys have never looked worse. <laughs> yeah. They look like super shit. There's a, there's a scene in the, in the fight at the end when we see them, it's in split screen, and we see the two of them like having water sprayed on them over in their corners, and it's in slow motion, and they're, and they're like doing these like exhausted faces, and it's one of the most harrowing sights I've ever seen in a movie. It, it, it looks like spoiled meat. Oh, speaking of spoiled meat, there's lots of uh, like callbacks to Raging Bull and Rocky. Aren't you going to punch this, uh, aren't you going to punch the meat? No, we're just buying some for supper. Yeah, Ugh. good stuff. Or, you know, the movie begins with uh, uh, De Niro has a restaurant that he runs and he's doing a little vaudeville shtick on stage. Just like Jake LaMotta, you know? Wink, yeah. wink. <laughs> wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Say no more, say no more. How do you think Robert De Niro felt doing this kind of stuff? Oh, I think he just does it on an assembly line. and uh, <laughs> They call him one take De Niro. They're yeah. like, he's like, I'm done. I got to see my kids tonight by seven. But I, I read a profile of De Niro recently on the occasion of uh, a movie called The Intern. <laughs> Which I hear is... Uh, you watchable. Know, watchable, yeah. yeah, enjoyable. Anyway, Nancy Myers said that in that movie, De Niro on the set would cultivate a relationship with some of the younger guys in the cast because... Uh, it needed to seem authentic in the movie that they were like buds. So I don't know, maybe either De Niro is just a nice guy and wants to hang out with the cast or do you think that, or he's subtly doing some method stuff still? Yeah. Like his craft, which was big showy front page is now like on the surface. And now that he's done all this big stuff, he's like, I can just work my magic you know, under the radar. Also, giving my magic as much as this film deserves. Also, which well, is almost nothing. It would also be nice if 
I mean, this is one reason why it'd be nicer if he was a little less cagey in interviews, because Marlon Brando, who had a similar career trajectory... Was a real, like, fuck you, these movies are garbage. Yeah, these movies are garbage, and I'm not going to throw myself into these movies. I can... I can I, I'm good enough at this that I can just go through the motions, uh, and I know how to simulate stuff, uh, and it'll be fine. It's, it's called acting. Yeah. <laughs> I... Watching a movie like Killing Season, which is this John Travolta, Robert De Niro film, like I said, directed by the guy who did Ghost Rider, is just baffling. Like, I can't even imagine them being on set Mm -hmm. and having to go through these motions. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel kind of bad for Robert De Niro. (laughs) Did you see Righteous Kill? No, I didn't. That was uh, the the movie with him and Al Pacino. At least I got a theatrical release, Killing (laughs) Season right direct to video. He's in so much VOD shit these (laughs) days. It's insane. You know, maybe it's because we live in, like, a globalized world where maybe his films are playing theatrically in, like, China and these other places, and he's a name, and that's what sells these movies. Well, I think think definitely. Like, Mm. uh, clearly he has his price, which is probably, like, $2 million. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, put put his name in it. It'll sell in VOD all over the world. You got an instant profit. How much time before Robert De Niro is appearing in David Dakota films? I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. Honestly, I, th- I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Although I, James Caan was in a Frank D'Angelo movie. <laughs> oh, can you imagine if Robert De Niro showed up in a Frank D'Angelo movie? Oh, that'd be amazing. Like if they just paid him for like two days or I don't, whatever? I don't think he's quite there yet. But. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think Robert De Niro's career holds in the future? I think more of the same. I think uh, one good movie out of ten and uh, a lot of VOD crap. Do you think he has that like clutching for oscar glory that may happen or he's won twice why does he need to win again i don't think he cares yeah he's just like i got hotels to invest in i think maybe if i were at this point i wouldn't care either i mean it's it's a shame which you will be at one day yeah you just waiting for that mean streets roll (laughs) yeah that's right uh that will slow such a live wire i think it's a shame that that there are so many bad de niro movies but because they're almost starting to outweigh the good ones right yeah it's like later seasons of the simpsons you know but the thing is those early seasons of simpsons will never die just like these early de niro movies will always stand the test of time we hope well that's that's nice to know have you seen the adventures of rocky and bullwinkle i have not seen the adventures of rocky bullwinkle that movie has a scene where uh, as fearless leader uh he's sitting in his chair and he says to jason alexander and renee russo are you talking to me? Oh my god. Are you talking to me? Well, I am the only one here. How many times do you think Robert De Niro has done that shtick? Probably not that often. I feel like he, <laughs> if we went into his filmography and watched like, the lame comedies, there's a Pro- to that. <laughs> oh yeah, probably. Can you imagine being the director going like, hey, can you do the, um, you're talking to me It's thing? like how every in every movie Arnold Schwarzenegger goes, I'll be back. <laughs> I think Robert De Niro probably just holds out his hand. It's like the the cash is put right in there. And he's like, thanks, Mr. D'Angelo. There's, I, I have a favorite YouTube uh, clip, by the way, that's um, at, at something called the Big E Fair somewhere in the U.S. And there's a Robert De Niro imitator, a Jack Nicholson <laughs> imitator, and a Danny DeVito imitator. And it starts with the De Niro imitator going, Hey, I'm here at the Big E Fair with my buddies, Jack and Danny. Uh, and then and then he answers the cell phone. He goes, "Hey, hey, what I tell you? Don't you fucking call me at work. Don't you call me at work. I'll break your I'll break your fucking legs. All right, bye, mom." <laughs> you know, to just add a little bit of a ray of sunshine, um, De-, De Niro is going to star in a movie called The Stand Up, I think, something like that. And he did hit the road to try his himself at stand-up comedy now you sent me this clip <laughs> i did of him per- performing stand-up in the catskills 
It's very bad. <laughs> yes. Uh, Maybe supposed to be a bad stand-up com- comedian. I mean, it, it really makes you long for the uh, grace and professionalism of Rupert Pupkin on the Jerry Langford show. Uh, it actually kind of amazed me watching it because that scene at the end of The King of Comedy where he's doing the stand-up act is really masterful because like, he studied comedy so much that he figured out how to do a bad act that was almost good mm-hmm. and and like everything about the act it was it was as if it was an act performed by somebody who'd never performed in front of an audience but had mastered kind of the delivery of the jokes yeah like he had worked really hard on that yeah. while de niro in this clip in the cat skills and could there be a more perfect place for him to do stand-up <laughs> comedy is just like an old man de niro lazily delivering jokes yeah so i don't know maybe the movie will be better supposedly he's playing kind of like a don rickles type insult comedian um and i could i could see liking that so next week we're staying in the same kind of wheelhouse we're not going international (laughs) we're not doing anything like that another straight white male (laughs) exactly god we're doing uh francis ford coppola but we're not doing Godfather 2. Fuck that movie. And we're not going to be doing Apocalypse Now. Garbage. We're going to be doing his later years. The years when he was truly free mm-hmm. from any kind of studio rules mm-hmm. or sense or anything like that. <laughs> we're going to be doing his fame trilogy. Does it have a name? Uh, the, the Vineyard Trilogy, we'll call it. <laughs> Based upon... they were all shot on his vineyard. Um, it's going to be Tetro. Starring or featuring young Han Solo himself. Alden Allenrich yeah. is in it. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, well, Vincent Gallo, too, is in it. We're going to be doing Youth Us Out Youth, the Tim Ross comeback vehicle. <laughs> and we're going to be doing Val Kilmer's swan song. That makes it sound like he's dead. <laughs> Twix. Oh, man. The, uh, Val Kilmer plays a Stephen King-like figure who fights vampires in 3D. So this is, you know... Coppola, 20 years paying off bills, doing movies like Jack, doing movies like The Rainmaker. This is his chance to reclaim his art. Do No limits. We're finally going to get the great Coppola films again. And <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to tune in next week yeah. to uh, have us discuss it. And until then, um, we're very excited to be doing this. Yeah. Uh, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Are you aware that it's a very important time of year, Will? Uh, summer? No. It is the 10th anniversary of Michael Mann's Miami Vice. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we're approaching maybe the first or second anniversary of me seeing it for the first and only time. Really? You haven't? You didn't see it on a theatrical release? You no, were... I didn't. I thought it looked, I thought it looked bad. I, I, when it came out, I wasn't, uh, you know, I was a young man and I was not quite aware of the fervent Michael Mann cult that existed. So for people that don't know, uh, Miami Vice, this Colin Farrell, Jamie Foxx starring adaptation of the 80s tv show that michael mann also had a hand in creating Uh back then so he decided to bring it up to the big screen again and people love this movie like it's a small crowd of like film twitterers who love this movie kind of the vulgar tourists i think like the world at large was pretty indifferent to this movie but i don't think i've seen more hyperbole around miami vice than like any other movie ever how did this happen because it seems like it was just one of these things that accumulated where you know like at some point people started being like um oh the the way he uses the camera is like when the first abstract expressionists appeared after after the Second World War. I remember seeing the movie in my youth with my father and my brother. It was in a small town in a little cinema, and it was a kind of experience that really defines you when you see a work of art like this. And I remember 
being like, this movie is super long and boring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, nothing is happening in this movie. And even, I don't remember how old I was, probably 15, 16, around that age, I recall going, this looks super cheap. Yeah, <laughs> like, that digital cinematography. But, but of course, it looks shit because it's supposed to look shit. So, <laughs> that's what it is. So it's it like real life. It's very successful at looking like shit. Uh, I, l- listen, I, I know that... Uh, Michael Mann's Defenders, you know, Michael Mann, his movies, movies like Manhunter. Um, Fantastic. Thief, Love it. Yeah. They look amazing. And uh, Public it, Enemies. <laughs> well, you know, his partisans uh, made the case that he went as far as he could go with celluloid and conventional filming. So he needed to find new textures, new filmic visual landscapes. Even though during the screening of Heat that he did at the Toronto International Film Festival last year, when it ended, he went, huh. I haven't seen this movie on celluloid in decades. Looks really good. Maybe I'll shoot my next film on celluloid. I hope he does. Well, listen, I kind of... uh, Did you see Black Hat? Yes, I did. I thought that one looked kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still not my favorite mode of uh, Michael Mann filmmaking, but I thought it looked kind of interesting. Honestly, I think Miami Vice... Um, it's a slog. I, I think it's a slog, and I think that his ex, his visual experiments work maybe twenty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Like I like the scenes where they're kind of like the jet ski chases at night, and you see just sort of the way that the that the trail of the jet skis look. Well, I um, think the issue is the banality of how ugly stuff looks in some situations. Because when you think of Michael Mann, whether it be Manhunter or Thief, you think of very defined visual mm-hmm. language. While when you just see Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell talking on a roof with no lights, because Michael Mann wanted to capture it au naturel, you're like, ugh, or it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Also, the script is awful. Like, it's a formless nothingness. Yeah, it's it's pretty boring, and uh, Crockett and Tubbs don't have a lot of chemistry. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I know that people just cream their jeans over this movie. I don't know. And do you have, like, a disconnect when you're looking on Twitter? Because sometimes I do, where I'm like, I don't understand. Well, listen, like, I, I... Am I just the working class, I and hate- I can't... It's wrong to ascribe. Um, it's wrong to have bad faith assumptions about people. But I, but I do think that, like, there are times when momentum goes behind a certain movie because certain tastemakers have claimed it. Like, what other movies at the top of your head would you say? Uh, Showgirls, <laughs> I, I hate to say. Like, I, I, I enjoy Showgirls. I, I kind of like Showgirls, but I don't think, you know, n- now we're getting people saying that it's a masterpiece. <laughs> and it's, like, I don't think it is a masterpiece. I think it's a, it's a movie. Fun? It's, it's fun. Um, I think, like, the thing about Showgirls is... Uh, the defense, you know, Adam Naiman wrote a, a pretty good book about it, and he made the best possible case for it. I think. Um, I, I think the problem with Showgirls is like you're actually, in addition to it being kind of like a satire of um, Las Vegas and the, the sex world in Las Vegas. I think Verhoeven actually does want you to get engrossed in the plot. Yeah, well, it's the same thing and with it, something and like Starship Troopers, right? Yeah, but but the thing is, in Showgirls, you don't get engrossed in the no, plot. No, because I think the acting and the way that it's constructed yeah. doesn't let the audience in in a way that I believe Paul Verhoeven thinks that he's doing. Right, and I think that, you know, a movie like Basic Instinct... Um, you know, when you watch that, you can be like, oh, this is the tone he was going for with Showgirls, where it's this kind of like sort of tongue in cheek, uh, this this kind of hyperbolic uh, atmosphere. 
but you actually sort of get engrossed in it. Well, that's because the genre trappings of something like Basic Instinct make sense, right? right. And they reflect something you know, while Showgirls is so massive and like sprawling that there's mm-hmm. nothing to attach yourself and to. I feel like in Adam Naiman's book like I say I like the book I think I think it's good but I, I feel like it's less persuasive and I'm sorry it's been a few years since I've read it so maybe I'm not doing the argument justice I feel like it's less persuasive when it talks about Verhoeven using uh, Elizabeth Berkeley as almost like a sacrificial lamb almost well, like where her performance is supposed to be bad yeah once again I always bring up Starship Troopers where you have Casper Van Dien yeah and, but that I feel works within the context of the narrative they're trying to say yeah while showgirls uh, it's fun. But anyway, I, I feel like Showgirls is a movie that like doesn't quite work, yeah. um, but uh, has become kind of absurdly overrated in recent years. I'm not an internet critic, Will, so I don't have to write hot takes to get attention. <laughs> so I'm asking, have you had to do this? Have you sat at the keyboard, fingers hovering over like um, BFG is the best Steven Spielberg film that he's ever made? Um, I mean, I feel like a lot of my tweets are hot takes, uh, but 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 they're all correct. I mean, everything I say is infallible. <laughs> so, but you've never felt like the need to publish that article, like? Um, I wrote an article once arguing that Lenny Bruce isn't funny. Really? And and of course, nobody clicked on it because like, who who gives a shit? He's been dead for 